is, it is good to be here with you this morning. It's been a lovely ride down through the Connecticut and Rhode Island countryside. Only had a couple moments of, so I was going through a, a forest area and there were a bunch of guys hunting. I guess it's hunting season. And I was just hoping they were pointing their guns into the forest. Yes. I would like to uh, have you turn with me now uh, to the book of Genesis, chapter 22. Our text this morning is uh, Genesis 22, verses 1 to 14. Let's give attention to God's word. After these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, he said, here I am. And he said, take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. So Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, and took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac. And he cut the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. On the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place from afar. Then Abraham said to this young man, Stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac his son, And he took in his hand the fire and the knife, so they went both of them together. And Isaac said to his father, Abraham, my father. He said, here I am, son. He said, behold, the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for a burnt offering? Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. So they went, both of them, together. When they came to the place of which God had told him, Abraham built the altar there and laid the wood in order and bound his son Isaac and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, here I am. He said, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, seeing you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called the name of the place, the Lord will provide. As it is said to this day, on mount of the Lord it shall be provided. Let us pray. Gracious God, as we come now to your word, uh, we do pray for that winnowing process Uh, that your spirit can accomplish in us through it. 
So I pray for that work of your spirit. I pray that he would give me the words to speak and would give all of us the ears to hear. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Abraham's reputation in scripture as a man of faith rests in no small part on what we find here, these events in Genesis chapter 22. But though Abraham is an early example of a person of faith, the history of God's people provides us with many illustrations. For example, in Hebrews 11, we have that litany of people who believed God and obeyed him in the face of great adversity. And of course, the list doesn't end with Scripture. I'm always struck uh, by how Martin Luther describes his own conversion experience, uh, which occurred while he was studying Romans chapter 1, verses uh, 16 and 17. And Luther writes of that moment, Night and day I poured, excuse me, night and day I pondered until I saw the connection between the justice of God and the statement that the just shall live by faith. Then I grasped that the justice of God is the righteousness by which through grace and sheer mercy God justifies us through faith. Thereupon I felt myself to be reborn and to have gone through the open doors into paradise. The whole of scripture took on new meaning. And whereas before the justice of God had filled me with hate, now it became to me inexpressibly sweet in greater love. This passage of Paul became to me a gate to heaven. It still inspires me to read that, not just read it, with my eyes, but even to talk about it and and to read it out loud, uh, to hear Brother Martin's testimony of the work of the Spirit as he studied the Word of God. But it was not just Martin Luther. There were also men like John Wycliffe and John Huss, men who went to their graves still yearning to see the widespread revival restoration of the church of Christ. Men to whom Christ was more important than life itself. Huss, as he was tied to the stake, was given one last chance to escape the fire. Said Huss, God is my witness that the evidence against me is false. I have never taught nor preached except with the one intention of winning men, if possible, from their sins. In the truth of the gospel I have written, taught, and preached. Today I will gladly die. Well, when I read things like that, I don't know about you, but all kinds of questions come into my mind. The usual ones. Where would I have been if I had been alive in that day? Uh, What are the parallels to our times? 
who today would we identify as men of faith like Wycliffe, Huss, or Luther? Who would be identified today as his followers, as their followers? Or on the other side, who today would be uh, parallel to the corrupt and decaying church of Rome in that day? When I was growing up in my early years and in my early years of ministry, the, the worldly, I think, corrupt, decaying church that we would have identified would have been liberal Protestant Christianity. I'm not sure they actually fit the bill anymore. To me, it seems like more and more the liberal church is fading away in our culture. My fear is that the corrupt and decaying church which dominates the landscape of our country today is evangelical Protestantism. Where does one find the church immersed in the trappings of this world, preoccupied with success, size, glitz, showmanship, everything that you find in culture at large? And it does not seem to me that we who occupy... uh, that corner of evangelicalism that is Reformed and Presbyterian are not always necessarily that much better. A number of years ago, I can remember a survey that George Gallup did in one of his his, uh, studies of religion in America, and he he observed this about evangelical Christianity. He said it had a very broad acceptance, but at the same time, it was thin without much depth. I think 20, 25 years after that study, we can say, yeah, we can see some of the results of that thinness and lack of depth. As you look over the religious landscape in the early stages of the 21st century, with all its preoccupations with the political and and cultural issues. The words of uh, Jesus in Luke chapter 18, verse 8, I think are haunting. When the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? What is so inspiring about the men of the uh, 14th, 15th, and 16th century is you know that for them to trust God was no easy thing. It wasn't safe. Against all the wisdom of the world, they clung to God and believed his promises. And so in the words of Hebrews chapter 11, They were longing for a better country, a heavenly one. Therefore, God was not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. As we look at Genesis 22, we are approaching the very end of the Abraham story. 
Abraham's career as a man of faith has had its ups and downs. He comes to us, he's pictured for us in scripture, warts and all. And of course, ultimately, we are not to look to Abraham, but to the God of Abraham. We are to, in the words of the hymn, the God of Abraham praise. Also, I think we are to recognize that the people like Abraham are not the superheroes of the Bible, but they are real flesh and blood people like we are. Abraham's life, like so many of the biblical characters, could be described as the good, the bad, and the ugly. In Genesis Chapter 12, the first nine verses, and really the last couple verses of chapter 11, uh, we find Abraham the good, receiving the promises of God and obeying him and leaving his homeland and going on a journey to a a town, a, a country, which God will show him, which he does not know. A great act of faith. In Genesis chapter 12, starting in verse 10 through 20, we get to see the bad in Abraham's refusal to trust the Lord and taking matters into his own hands. There is a famine in the promised land, and so he leaves, and he takes his his whole group of people and his wife, and they go to Egypt. In Egypt we find that the, the Pharaoh has eyes for Sarah, his wife. Abraham, to save his own skin, passes her off as his sister, which was technically true, at least to an extent, but still a terrible act of abandonment and lack of trust in God. Nevertheless, God delivers him, delivers Sarah, comes to the rescue. And as Abraham, Sarah, and all return to the promised land, they go back richer than ever. In chapter 15, God comes once again to Abraham and promises him the impossible. He promised that Abraham would be the father of a great nation. Though to this point, Sarah and Abraham were unable to have children. And we're told that against all human wisdom, Abraham believed the Lord, and he, that is the Lord, credited it to him as righteousness. But then, unbelief raises its ugly face once again. In Genesis chapter 16, Abraham takes the work of God into his own hands. In Abraham's mind, the only way the promise can be fulfilled is if he follows the cultural convention of the day and takes Sarah's maidservant, Hagar, in order to have a child. Ishmael is born. But we are reminded that Ishmael is not to be the child of promise. 
In chapter 21, God fulfills his promise in his way. The 90-year-old Sarah gives birth to a son, Isaac. All through his life, we are presented with Abraham's struggle in trusting God and in God's patient dealings with Abraham. And now as we approach chapter 22 of Genesis, we can feel the tension building. The stage is set. The test of Abraham's faith, his trust in God, is to move to a new level. In chapter 21, God challenges Abraham to believe that God would fulfill his promise through Isaac. The proof of Abraham's faith was this. By his willingness to drive Hagar and Ishmael out into the wilderness, out of the camp, and in so doing, abandon the notion that Ishmael could provide a backup to the line of promise. The backup file was deleted. The system of redundancy was stripped away. The line of promise was Isaac, where there was no line of promise. Now the supreme test. Was Abraham willing to sacrifice Isaac if if God required it? A number of years ago now, I was at a preaching conference, sort of a small conference, uh, and uh, the main speaker who was trying to help us to grow as preachers was John Piper. And Piper would talk about things about preaching and such, and then he would give us a, a short sermonette or sometimes a longer sermon illustrating that. But nevertheless, it was a, a real proclamation of the word of truth. And he shared with us in one of those that the past year he had gone through one of the most difficult times in his whole life. His son, who had gone off to college as a freshman, came home that summer and had told his dad he didn't think he could do the Christian thing. He really didn't believe. And of course, as you can imagine, Piper was was shaken. He asked all kinds of questions. You can imagine that if you were in that circumstance, or maybe you've been in that circumstance, you would ask the same thing. Could he still love God? Could, could God still be his all in all? If his son was not called to be one of God's children. Piper said as he wrestled with that, he was shook to the very core of his soul. But his anguished conclusion was that he had no other refuge. Will Abraham love God? Will he trust God? Even if it means death to Isaac and death to the line of promise. 
It was through Isaac that he was to have multitudes of descendants and to possess the promised land. Humanly speaking, killing Isaac meant kissing God's promises goodbye. In the space of three short imperatives, in verse 2 of chapter 22, take Isaac, go, offer him or sacrifice him. Abraham's whole world came crashing down around him. One of the things we, we learn from Abraham is that even the promise of God can become an idol. As soon as you say, I must have God plus all the good things he promises me, then God's blessings have become an idol in our lives. Why did Abraham trust God? I think a case could be made that Abraham believed God because God had blessed him with riches and family and a great name. What had Abraham really given up in comparison? The friends and family and earlier of the Chaldees. Yeah, what's the big deal? But now Abraham was going to be put to the supreme test. Barring a miracle to kill Isaac would put an end to the promises of God. We, the readers, know that it was only just a test. But Abraham didn't. Did he serve God for God's blessings or for God himself? How about you or me? If God were to take away from you every possession that you own and with it your spouse, your family, your friends... Would you still serve him? Are you willing to say, if I have God and God alone, I have everything I need for life and death? How does Abraham respond to the challenge set before him? In verse 3, we are told that he got up early the next morning and set about obeying God right away. What's more, he didn't get cold feet. We were told it took him three days to get to Mount Moriah, the appointed mountain. Those days must have seemed like an eternity to Abraham. Did he believe from the beginning that God would somehow perform a miracle? His instructions to the servants suggest that might be true. Stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. And when Isaac inquires, where is the lamb? Abraham assured him, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. But should there be no miracle, he was willing to carry his obedience through to the uttermost. 
The writer of Hebrews tells us that Abraham reasoned that God could raise the dead. But he had no direct uh, promise to that effect. He simply believed God, acted in obedience. His faith led to action. In essence, he affirmed, God believed, God said it, I believe it. That settles it. A couple of chapters earlier, chapter 18, we find Abraham declaring, Will not the judge of all the earth do right? You could add to that. Will not the judge of the earth, all the earth, do right? Even if we don't understand what he's doing. God called Abraham to go to the very edge in his obedience. Isaac was bound and laid on the altar, ready to be sacrificed. Again, Abraham had to take the knife to his son, as he did on the day of his circumcision. Only this time the judgment would not be merely a token, but absolute. Just at the point when the knife is raised, about to descend upon his beloved son, the angel of the Lord called out to him from heaven, Abraham, Abraham, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, seeing you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. As Abraham looked up, he saw that God indeed had provided a lamb trapped in the thicket. Abraham had passed the test. He had established once and for all that his hope was in the heavenly inheritance, not an earthly one. He had learned that God was able to fulfill his promises Without anyone's help. Did Abraham learn anything from that experience? In the Gospel of John, chapter 8, verse 56, we hear Jesus speaking to the Jews. Your father Abraham rejoiced at the thought of seeing my day. He saw it and was glad. What did Jesus mean by that? I think he meant that Abraham had a unique insight into the way of salvation that was to be established through that promised seed, Jesus Christ. And surely this experience with Isaac was an essential key to gaining such insight. In the first place, Abraham understood that there is know, of course, about God's promises. Some people uh, take God's forgiveness for granted. They see, of course, God will forgive. Uh, That's his job, isn't it? Actually, I think there are a couple ways that can be expressed. For some people, it doesn't really matter how you live. They believe that the God of love, of course, will have to forgive everybody. Or Others, some people think that they've 
you know, done a pretty good job with their life. Not perfect. They've lived a pretty good life, and, and God kind of owes them salvation, a sort of quid pro quo. Abraham recognized that God was under no obligation to save large numbers of people, or even any, if he so chose. It is only because of his gracious commitment to his covenant promises that any are redeemed. Second, Isaac was restored again to relationship with his father. But not without sacrifice. His redemption could not be accomplished without the shedding of blood. God did not simply call off the sacrifice after Abraham passed the test. The sacrifice still had to be made. Only the victim changed. So it is for us. Grace may be free to us. But it is only free because God has borne all the cost in Jesus. God has proved himself, Jehovah Jireh, which means the Lord will provide. Because he has provided a substitute, not just for Isaac, but for us all. We may be called to give up many things for Christ, even things most dear to us. You may lose people that mean more to you than, than life itself. We may lose dreams, and the parting can be truly bitter. But we know that our God is able to raise the dead. Our inheritance is not on earth, but in heaven, where nothing can touch it. But even more, we have the precious promise of Jesus, which we find in Matthew chapter 19, verse 28. I tell you, at the renewal of all things, when the Son of Man sits on his glorious throne, everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or fields for my sake will receive a hundred times as much and will inherit eternal life. In all of this, Jesus has gone ahead and has forged the path. In the Garden of Gethsemane, two roads presented themselves, two choices. The soldiers had not yet come to arrest Jesus, and while his disciples around him slept, Jesus could have declined the cup and called out the angels in judgment. Or he could remain faithful to his calling and drink the bitter cup of obedience. He could tread the path up the hill carrying his cross as Isaac has carried the wood of his own sacrifice. He could allow himself to be bound to the cross silently acquiescing just as Isaac allowed himself to be bound to the altar without a word. He could look up to heaven and see the knife poised in the Father's hand, knowing for him there would be no last-minute reprieve. 
For him there would be no substitute. For he was the Lamb of God. Jesus had to drink the cup of God's wrath to the dregs if the promise of blessing to Abraham and his descendants was to become a reality. The knife descended, the cup was drained, and that was the cost at which we were redeemed. Just as Abraham's willingness to take obedience to the ultimate point demonstrated his love for God beyond beyond any shadow of a doubt, so also God's willingness to take his son's obedience all the way to the agonies of the cross demonstrates the depth of his love for us beyond a shadow of a doubt. As the Apostle Paul says it in Romans chapter 8, He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also give up all things? In comparison, what is demanded of us? I for myself and my loved ones must place all my hope beyond the grave. Jesus calls us to suffer with him now, that we may be glorified together with him. We must share in his cross so that we may share in his crown. We must be willing, if necessary, to have all God's good promises postponed until eternity. God and God alone must be enough for us. How hard it is to wait sometimes. How hard it is to put to death every idol and follow Jesus. I think in some ways that's what's so inspiring to us of of people like Luther and Huss and Wycliffe. Remember this. He was put to death in your place, the spotless lamb of God for you, a filthy sinner. Our God has provided a lamb to bear the curse for you and me. Let us, therefore, lay all our desires on the altar, on his altar, and follow him. Let us pray. Father in heaven, we are once again reminded of what you and you alone are able to do, but more than that, what you have done. We praise you for the gift of your Son to us. We pray that you would, by your Spirit, work in our hearts and souls in such a way that we indeed can see with clarity that you and you alone are our all in all. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.